This week on the Back Table Podcast. In your medical practice, my medical practice, we don't use one piece of information to guide us. We use the whole picture. So we use the history of what the patient tells us, historically, what has the patient gone through. And in this case, with eustachia tube dysfunction, probably by the what they tell us will be enough of us to guide our clinical suspicions. And then I think things like the evaluation of the ear and the nasopharynx and the eustachian tube and uh, audiograms and tympanograms confirm that. Hey everybody, welcome to the Back Table ENT Podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Eclarent has a proud legacy of shaping the ENT landscape. Eclarent pioneered balloon sinuplasty as a minimally invasive therapy for patients suffering from conic sinusitis. They developed the first device, ERA, specifically designed to treat persistent eustachian tube dysfunction. They spearheaded a new minimally invasive option for nasal airway obstruction with the Relieva Tract Balloon Dilation System. And now, Eclarent has revolutionized ENT navigation technology by integrating artificial intelligence in its Trudy Navigation System. Not only are they committed to innovating in the ENT space, they also invest in supporting healthcare professionals with a variety of training resources. Eclarent is focused on delivering solutions that amplify the unique skills of ENT surgeons. Visit them at eclarent.com to learn more. Now, back to the show. I'm your host today. My name's Ashley Agan. I'm a general ENT practicing in Dallas, Texas. Gopi couldn't make it today. She's here in spirit. We're sending her love and thoughts and good vibes. Uh, but I do have a great guest today, Dr. Silish Babu. He is a board-certified otologist. He's certified in adult and pediatric otology, neurotology, otolaryngology, and skull-based surgery. And he specializes in medical and surgical treatment of ear and skull-based disorders in adults and children. His clinical interests include ear infections, hearing loss, dizziness, facial weakness, cochlear implants, and acoustic neuromas. Today, we're going to talk about eustachian tube dysfunction, eustachian tube dilation. We're going to get into a lot of specifics around the topic. I'm really excited for it. Welcome to the show, Sai. Ashley, thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to see you again. Yeah, Silas and I were on a panel together on eustachian tube dilation back at COSM in end of April, early May, end of April. But we got to meet each other there, but didn't get to chat much because we were both on the panel, so I met each other in passing. So I'm glad that we have the opportunity today to get into it and compare techniques and thoughts on this topic. Yes, it'll be uh, good to go through some of these things. So before we get into it, we always like our guests to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and what your practice is like. Tell us about you. Yeah, so I did my uh, residency in downtown Detroit. That's what brought me to uh, Michigan. And I did it at Henry Ford Hospital. I did my fellowship at the Michigan Ear Institute and have uh, stayed on ever since practicing otology and neurotology there. And we have a busy residency program. We have a busy fellowship. We do a, a breadth of otology and neurotology and do very simple TM perforation repairs to very complex skull-based tumors and epidermoids. I've been doing it for 20 years now, and it's been a very busy, healthy practice. And we love the impact we have on our community. We love the impact that we have on the training uh, program of the future of our society. That's awesome. So let's get into eustachian tube dilation. 
For listeners who may not be familiar with that, can you give a little background on what does that mean? What are we talking about? What patience is this for? Sure. As many people know, you have chronic eustachian tube dysfunction that occurs in kids um, and then it can exacerbate problems in adults and lead to many ear-related issues, whether it's recurrent fluid, whether it's retracted tympanic membranes. But we think the bottom issue, the main issue that's causing these problems is eustachian tube dysfunction. And for a long period of time, the only solution we had was maybe some medical therapy that may or may not help with nasal steroid sprays or allergy medications. Uh, and then we would put tubes in people's ears as the mainstay of treating eustachian tube dysfunction. And then several years ago, we finally had an FDA-approved procedure and technique where you could use a balloon catheter uh, similar to coronary artery balloons, but now it happens to be designed for the eustachian tube. It's have a different bend to it. It's a little more flexible. It gains access to the eustachian tube through the uh, nasal cavity in the nasopharynx so that we can place this catheter into the eustachian tube opening and stretch it, dilate it, maybe crush some uh, lymphoid follicles to improve the eustachian tube to open and close better so that patients can get relief of their symptoms and potentially not need further tubes or other interventions for ear-related problems. When this was first introduced, you're a notologist. You are usually coming at the ear laterally. What were your thoughts on moving towards working on the other side of the ear and being in the back of the nose? And did everything just come back naturally from residency or was there, uh, you know, a little bit of a, a hump to get over to be doing that again and being in that part of the nose? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because it is a struggle, to be honest, uh, especially in the beginning when we're so used to going in from the ear side and making posterior incisions and drilling mastoids, which is clearly what we're good at doing, to then go back and remember putting a scope in the nose, being able to decongest the um, nasal cavity enough to get access to prevent bleeding to then get back in there and be able to place eustachian. But yeah, it definitely is a little bit of a learning curve. With practice, it can get better, but there's certain times in certain nasal cavities that I have a tough time still to this day that the septum's really pushed over one way. The turbinates are really um, boggy and edematous. And my residents or fellows will say, well, why don't you just do a septoplasty one and you just do a turbinate reduction? And really, because it's not my... <laughs> You're like, because I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want patients coming into my office with a nosebleed or their septum isn't what they thought it was going to be. So yeah, it, there's a little bit of that occurs, but I think that's the small uh, proportion of them. I think the majority of people, as an otologist, you can get used to it and be able to gain access and really treat them. If nothing else, we need to learn again to go back in time as residents. When we had patients with eustachian tube problems, we didn't do a lot of evaluation of the nasopharynx and the eustachian tube. It wasn't part of at least my training as much to look at. It. And probably the reason why is you couldn't do anything about it. So what difference does it make to go look? But now we've gotten to the point where we don't ever look unless you have a unilateral serous effusion, which we know to look for nasopharyngeal masses or lesions or carcinoma, but that's rare in and of itself. But really what we should be looking at is what does eustachian look like? And if we scope a lot of people and get a good sense of what does normal look like, then we get a sense of what abnormal looks like. And we can now say this may be a good candidate for uh, balloon dilation based on certain features that we can see in the nasopharynx that would help us. That's a good segue to talking about how you're evaluating these patients. And so when you have someone come into your office and it looks like eustachian tube dysfunction might be the underlying disorder. Or let's just say they're coming in and they have either hearing loss or ear fullness or trouble when they fly or a lot of these symptoms that we see in this patient population. Walk us through what your evaluation looks like. Let's even start back with like when a patient does come in, like you're alluding to, what symptoms should we be looking for? So I think um, certain subsets of patients come in with easy decision making as to what do we do. A patient who has barrow challenges, they go scuba diving or they fly in an airplane and they have issues. 
And then when you see them in the office, of course, they're going to have more of a normal examination because they're not having that problems. But you can trust their history enough and uh, experience has taught us that I think those type of patients do well with this type of intervention. Whether it's a tube in the ear or a balloon dilation, they'll actually do well in that scenario. And then you have some patients that come in with multiple serous effusions and they've had multiple tubes in their ears. And I think that also is a good candidate for their hearing loss, their ear fullness, uh, multiple tubes that have helped their symptoms. I think that's a good candidate also to be looking at um, next steps. And then the patients who come in with ear fullness, I think that becomes a harder challenge to delineate what therapy is going to help that patient with ear fullness. And ear fullness is a tough one. I have found myself putting them in categories and trying to figure out is it eustachian tube related or not? Is it Meniere's disease? Is it superior canal dehiscence? Is it maybe masseter or pterygoid muscle tension that's maybe causing some of this? Is it anxiety? Is there other factors that we have to take into account? I think one of my main things that I do is I try doing either a myringotomy or a tympanostomy tube in that scenario to see does that give them relief? My opinion is if it does not give them relief, then I don't think eustachian tube dysfunction is their main issue. And therefore, I don't think a balloon dilation would be indicated in that scenario. But that's a long-winded sort of way of saying, what do these patients present with? But the next steps then we think about evaluation is, uh, I think we should do a you know a good thorough examination of their ears, see if there's retraction of the tympanic membrane, see if there's fluid in the middle ear space. I think all these patients should have uh, nasal pharyngoscopy. As we had talked about, to really look at the nasopharynx, see is there adenoid tissue? Is there adenoid in the eustachian tube? Is there hypertrophy of the torus tuberius? Is there mucosal edema? Is there cobblestoning? What does the movement of the eustachian tube look like? Some of that over time will give you a sense of maybe this is a good one to intervene on. All of them will get audiograms. I don't always get tympanograms, but many times tympanograms will help decide. Uh, there was a time where insurance coverage was an issue, and so you'd have to get a, a tympanogram on everybody to show that it was flat or poor, but that has changed a bit now, so it's not as critical to get that, but many places will still get it. It's a good way to follow objectively what do they do afterwards if it became normal. So you don't always have a tympanogram pre-procedurally? I, I don't usually. like. I feel like my trend was many of these patients are barrow-challenged patients. And so if you do a tympanogram, it's normal. And so there was a time where you have normal tympanograms, a normal exam, and then I'm doing a balloon dilation. It doesn't quite make sense. But of course, these patients then love it because then they can fly with any problems. So that's what changed my opinion about why do I need a tympanogram and everybody to go do it. I want to back up just a tad because in your evaluation of these patients coming in and their histories, I've experienced a lot of the same thoughts as far as like how to put these patients in the different categories and figure out what's going on. And I echo that the ones that have that history of multiple tubes or every time I fly or every time I'm pressure challenged, it hurts or you have symptoms. Those are the slam dunks, right? Like you feel like, okay, I really think this is going to help you. I can say confidently you're a great candidate for this. And then there's the ear fullness patients. Those can be such a puzzle sometimes. And when we were on the panel together, you talked about the utility of a trial myringotomy or a myringotomy with a tube to say, okay, if this helps with your symptoms, then I feel pretty confident that this is a eustachian tube issue. And when you were talking about it, you talked about the difference between a myringotomy by itself and a myringotomy with a tube. And I wanted to talk to you more about and have you expand on that because I have also had this situation in patients where almost 100% sure like that maybe this is a eustachian tube issue, but let's try a myringotomy. And then we do a myringotomy and then they hate it. But then you mentioned that sometimes the myringotomy by itself may not help the way a myringotomy with a tube is. I wanted to pick your brain on that. So there's certain patients I've learned over time that when you do a myringotomy, sometimes I'll step away from the microscope and just say, you know, how do you feel? And the patient universally says, 
I don't know, it still seems muffled or plugged. And then you realize like, well, you just sucked out all this fluid in their ear. They should have said, I hear great. And then maybe about by the time I put the tube in their ear and then you give it to five, 10, 15 minutes, then they're like, you know what? It does feel better. I can hear louder. But then there's a couple of times where a patient has to come in maybe a day later, two days later, because the tube got plugged or something. And I'll ask them how they're doing. And they keep saying, there's a lot of this echoing and, and just reverberation. So my opinion in a long-winded way is, I think when we change the acoustics of the eardrum, we make an incision and we change either the radial fibers, the circumferential fibers of the TM, we change the, the tightness of that eardrum. I think it affects the acoustics in us, in humans. And that change in acoustics is annoying to patients in the sense that when you do it, that first two, three days, I think the patient's just getting over the fact that they have this ear fullness, this weird hearing, it doesn't sound right, it's muffled. And then by the time you do a myringotomy and it closes within two days and you say, hey, did that help you? I think the patient's so stunned by everything else. I don't know if they get a sense of, did that actually make their ear fullness or pressure better because they were dealing with these other symptoms? This is my theory. And so I tend to, if a general laryngologist sends me a patient and they tried a myringotomy and it didn't help, but my gut feeling, like you said, is that I think this is eustachian dysfunction. I will put a tube actually in the eardrum. And I've definitely found differences that when I put the tube in, the patient will say, oh my gosh, this is so much better. It may not right away, but you know, when they come back and see me in two weeks, they'll say, oh, it's so much better since you put the tube in. And then we'll make some decisions about, okay, now we have some options to talk about other therapies. But yeah, I don't think a myringotomy in and of itself tells me the answer enough to give me the guidance is what I've learned over the years. That really blows up a lot of my <laughs> algorithms. <laughs> Do you find that patients who are singers or musicians are more in tune with their hearing and may notice it or be bothered by it more? If they're even sound engineers or they're recording artists or if they do perform or if they're somehow musically uh, inclined, for sure, they're more in tune to their hearing and any change causes them to have problems. I don't know if they have more issues with eustachian tube or seem to complain more about that type of symptom because of that field. But when they have ear problems, there's no question that I may be a little reluctant to maybe go down some pathways with them because they will complain uh, quite a bit about different scenarios. If you do a myringotomy or do a tube in their ear, they will definitely be more sensitive and they can't, quote unquote, hit certain registers or they can't, you know, hear certain things that they could hear before. And so you have to be a little cautious in that scenario. That little maybe 10 decibel difference after we put the tube in is more heightened in some of these patients that I've had where they're like, if my hearing is muffled, you can't hear out of this ear and your audiogram is like essentially normal, but it's like maybe 10 decibels worse than it was before. So I don't know. I feel like I'm always over counseling in that population, like it could change your hearing a little bit. Yeah, on a side note, when you go down that same path and you think about that same scenario and then you have, they have otosclerosis or they have a superior canal dehiscence or they have an acoustic tumor. Yeah. Then of course those things are magnified uh, tremendously than the idea of a, a tube in the ear. So yeah, probably in my world of otology, the perspective I have is it's a tube, you'll be fine. It'll change your acoustics, just live with it. And because if they start going down that path, I say, well, in comparison to all these other patients I have, it's not a big deal. You have a five decibel loss. It'll go away in a little bit. Just you, you can tolerate it. Trust me. Do you feel like over time patients that their brain gets used to it a little bit more and that difference becomes less obvious to them? They habituate a little bit. That little change after they get a tube. I think actually the flanges even of the tube create a little bit of acoustics that allow it to be better. So that over time, as it just settles in place and maybe uh, scars adheres a little bit, that's what affects the acoustics. I don't think there's central changes that need to occur because our audiograms are quite good in these patients with tubes. So I don't think there's an actual acoustic phenomenon that occurs long term that they have to then compensate for. I think it's just a short term 
change in acoustics because you change the uh, vibratory sensation of the tympanic membrane. So you just tell them, give, give it some more time before you pull out yeah. the tube. Have you ever had to pull out a tube if people don't like it? I've never pulled out a tube. It's very rare, but that'd be someone who has patch eustachian tube, for example, and I tried a tube and then they came in and said, that's worse. To me, that's actually a red flag of like, yeah, I shouldn't put a tube in someone's ear and it bothers them. If it bothers them, then I think about patches you station do because I must tell you, rarely would I have a patient, I put a tube in their ear and they're so quote unquote bothered that I have to remove it. To me, that's an anxiety component. That's a stress related component. There's other factors as to why I can probably count on one hand in 20 years. How many times have I taken a tube out of someone's ear? Speaking of red flag symptoms, are there any other things in the history that patients will bring up that tend to be more of a red flag? Oh, hey, maybe this isn't eustachian tube dysfunction. Maybe this is patchless or something else. Yeah, I think if they start complaining of any type of dizziness, vertigo, sound-induced symptoms, pressure-induced symptoms, they really shouldn't have any vertigo symptoms typically unless they have really bad uh, eustachian dysfunction and severe retraction of the tympanic membrane. Maybe it's sitting on the um, oval window or retracted onto the stapes, maybe in that scenario. But if you don't see that, and they're complaining of dizziness, and I would look for other options. And I think if they have uh, autophony, if they have pulsatile tinnitus, if they have reverberations when they talk or breathe, I, I do think those are issues that you have to uh, investigate further and be leery about patches eustachian tube. As we know, the majority of patients are going to have eustachian tube dysfunction if they have ear complaints, meaning in the spectrum of patches eustachian tube versus eustachian tube dysfunction, the majority of people are going to have eustachian tube dysfunction. But Two to four to five percent of the population may have this patchless type symptoms, and we want to pick up on those. And we especially want to pick up on those long before we think about a dilation for them because you'll make their symptoms obviously worse. I think going down that path of patchy station tube, like these patients usually have a typical body habit. It's they're thin. I think females seem to be more commonly, especially in my practice, but I have a lot of, you know, young, thin men, young, thin women who may have lost a pound or two pounds. And to them, that's not a big deal that they would notice weight loss, but they started at such a low number to begin with that I think that actually does push them over the edge. And I universally, universally is hard to say, but they always seem to have some anxiety component somewhere in their background that seems to also make them pay attention to this a little bit more too. I don't know if they're red flags, but definitely things that put me on notice to say, hey, um, pay attention to this one a little bit more because there's other things that may be contributing to their ear fullness that they're complaining of, if that's their you know main complaint. Absolutely. Do you use any like um, questionnaires? Do you use the eustachian tube dysfunction questionnaire, seven question one? Yeah, when we're doing uh, research or studies, then we tend to use that a little bit more. Probably in my day-to-day practice, I use it, but I have to be one of those things that I have to remember. Hey, can you fill this out and we're going to do it? Yeah, probably if you talk to my MAA or uh Residents, I'll say he doesn't use that all the time. <laughs> well, it's not. I mean, I think I'm the same. It, it's hard for me to remember to do it. But I think its intention is more for yeah research and following outcomes. At least for me, I feel like it hasn't been super helpful for making the diagnosis or deciding what their treatment could be. Right. Yeah. And the tool was designed for monitoring patients for therapy outcomes as opposed to making diagnosis. So it, it does work out well from that. You can monitor these patients. I think yeah, unless I'm going to publish a paper on it, we have used it and published on it. But if I'm not going to publish on it, then I probably don't collect the data and then it makes us exclude a lot of patients. So we have to think about that when we're doing it to make sure we can include as many as we can. Because the problem is that eustachian dysfunction is a subjective problem. And so when you start researching and trying to do research on a subjective problem, it's hard to know what was that intervention and how effective was that intervention. And so at least this questionnaire, maybe tympanograms, as we talked about earlier, can help us get that objective information. 
But we also know those who clinically practice and see a lot of these patients, like those don't always correlate. And so what we find is that if I knew for sure that that would help me make the diagnosis, we'd always get it. The problem is it never actually seems to help me clinically decide, oh, was that uh, a problem that I needed to intervene differently? And the answer is no, it never changed my management. So if it doesn't change my management, why do I order the test or do the test? And if you tell me for research, I'd say, but that's not what I clinically do all the time because it doesn't alter what I'm going to do next. And sometimes patients take a while doing it because they're really thinking about, yeah, pop, because it asks about popping and clicking. It asks about tinnitus, ear symptoms when you're sick, when you have sinusitis. They're like, but I've only had one, you know, sinus infection this year, you know. So sometimes it takes time and it doesn't help (laughs) with what we're trying to accomplish. Do you find that if they score a certain number, like greater than 2.1 or 2.4, I think is considered abnormal on the test. So seven is the worst. Do you find yourself that if, let's say there are six, do you say, oh, maybe I will treat this eustachia tube issues? Does it guide you at all or do you just use it for therapy purposes? Yeah, so sometimes like I just will talk and they'll talk about how how bad things are. And then you look down at the questionnaire and it's like all ones or it's it's really low. And you're like, oh, maybe this isn't that big of an issue for you. Or if it looks like they're all six or seven, like they're really high scores all on one side, then it's, oh, this is really, maybe it is severe. Maybe this is something that could help. But I, I think the exam is a lot more helpful. So segueing into that, when you're looking at these patients in clinic, we talked about looking at the eardrum and looking for retraction. And again, the patients that are more difficult are the ones that have a normal type A temp, like normal looking eardrum, but maybe there's some issues when they fly or we're trying to decide, could they be on the edge of eustachian tube dysfunction? Do you do anything as far as evaluating the movement of the eardrum? Do you do pneumatic otoscopy? Do you have them do a modified valsalva? Do you look at that at all? Yeah, those are good questions. I think I do try to do pneumatic otoscopy. I think the majority of times it doesn't seem to give me as much information as I really want to know. Where it's really helpful is to pick up on pressure-induced vertigo. So I probably use it way more for that, for superior canal deessence or a perilymph fistula or something like that. But for movement of the tomatic membrane, it's so subtle that whether or not I'm going to be able to pick up on a negative or positive, I probably would tell you I don't do it often enough to know if I can pick up on those subtleties. So that's probably a good adjunct. Doesn't help me make a decision going forward. The more important one is having them naturally being able to perform a Valsalva and even having the patient historically, can you pop your ears normally? Do they pop? And if they say yes, then that kind of also leads me away from eustachian tube dysfunction just based on that history. If they'll say, oh, I've never been able to all my life, I've always had trouble and I just, they never pop, I have trouble on flights historically, then that kind of then guides me like, yeah, that's a classic example of this type of uh, scenario. There is a scenario, just to go back a second, we were talking about past eustachian, which I think is important to pick up on. And I've learned from some experts in the field, as well as from literature, is that there are certain patients that will have this retraction of the eardrum They can even develop a cholesteatoma, but they actually have been sniffing to try to relieve patchless type symptoms that they've artificially created this retraction. I didn't really believe that would happen, but it's happened to me twice now where I've done temp mastoid surgery, found added cholesteatoma, cleaned out the ear, and the patient would continue to complain of ear fullness and pressure and hearing loss. And of course, had all the issues that go along with cholesteatoma type presentation, but not until maybe the patient's third or fourth surgery, did I finally pick up on that there must be some patchless component? And then when I addressed the patchless component, their symptoms got much better. And so I'm not saying we missed it, but it definitely was one of those things that I didn't think about. You could have patches eustachian tube and a retracted attic region and cholesteatoma. But I think Dr. Poe is 
talked about this and published on this too as well. And that's the first one or two times I've ever encountered that. So something as otolaryngologists and definitely as otologists, neurotologists, we should pay attention to that that can happen and, and be cognizant of that. Be, beware of the sniffers. Mm-hmm. You can create a lot of Do negative pressure. Do you I, that, I've seen uh, that sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty interesting. It's sometimes I've definitely had patients who don't complain of autophony, or maybe they don't. Maybe they're used to it because when you ask about echoing of voice or breath, they don't mention it. But then you like look in their ear. I've had patients where I just see the eardrum just moving in and out, you know, right with their breath. And I think maybe it just happens so slowly over time that they don't notice it as much. I don't know, but I've seen that too. Yeah, there are patients I've seen where their eardrum does move excursion with respirations and they don't have any symptoms. They have no problem at all. It just happened to be coincidentally, I happen to be looking at their ears and I'm watching their eardrum and it moves. And I say, do you have any of these other symptoms? They say no. And in my mind, I'm like, that's weird. I didn't know it just happened naturally. But I think I would almost say it happens more commonly. So it's not very common, but more commonly that I've seen a eardrum that moves with no symptoms than the other way around. Patient with classic patches, eustachian tube symptoms, and then has excursion. I actually see it the opposite way around, interestingly. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to see when you catch it. But yeah, I agree. The ones that I've caught it incidentally are usually like not bothered by it at all. Like they're just like, right. yeah. Okay. Whatever you say. I guess I have bachelor's. Okay. Moving back to, um, we're talking about moving through your evaluation in clinic. I just want to make sure we don't miss anything. We talked about looking at the ear and looking at the eustachian tube and the nasopharynx. We talked about adenoid tissue and inflammation and edema within the lumen of the eustachian tube. Does that part of the exam affect your decision for whether or not the patient's a good candidate for a dilation? Do they need to have a really swollen eustachian tube with the lymphoid hypertrophy? And does it need to look really edematous? Because I feel like sometimes if you were just putting the scope back there and you kind of looked and you're like, eh, it looks normal-ish, you might not think that a dilation would work, but then you start looking at how their ear is working and clearly their eustachian tube doesn't work, but maybe the issue is further down in the lumen of the eustachian tube. I don't know. Talk to me about what you're thinking when you're looking at it. I think it's probably multifactorial. As you know, as in your medical practice, my medical practice, we don't use one piece of information to sort of guide us. We use the whole picture. So we use the history of what the patient tells us historically, what has the patient gone through, and in this case, with eustachian tube dysfunction, probably by the what they tell us will be enough of us to guide our clinical suspicions. And then I think things like the evaluation of the ear and the nasopharynx and the eustachian tube and uh, audiograms and tympanograms confirm that. And so there are probably many times I look in the nasopharynx and it doesn't look as bad as I thought it was going to, but I'm still telling the patient, I still think we should consider a dilation of eustachian tube based on everything else you've told me. But I would say that there's more times than not that there is some type of either allergic changes in the nasopharynx, uh, you see some cobblestoning, some edema of the mucosa, and the eustachian tube orifice definitely seems um, thickened and just not normal. But again, if you don't scope a lot of people and you don't look at a lot of eustachian tubes, you'd have a tough time comparing normal to abnormal or the mild variations that can occur. And so I think the more you get used to scoping, the more you'll get the sense of like, oh, this is mild to moderate type edema or swelling, and you know, this would be a good candidate. And and if it's normal, it doesn't mean you can't do it or shouldn't do it. It's just that it, it makes you wonder, did you miss something or is it not as bad as you're thinking? I'm not sure, as you brought up the point, like, is it more proximal because you didn't see it in the nasopharyngeal opening? I'm not sure. I would say if you didn't see it in the nasopharyngeal opening, I don't know if I would think, oh, the disease must be more proximal and that's why I don't see it. I don't, I don't have any data on mm-hmm. that, but that's just my gut feeling. Do you use a, a rigid scope, flexible scope? 
How do you do your nasopharyngoscopy? I'm not going to lie to you. I have such a tough time in the office doing a rigid scope that I use a flexible scope in the office all day long to uh, evaluate the nasopharynx. We have access to a zero degree and a um, 30 degree in the office, but they're probably brand new, crystal clean and no broken fibers or anything because uh, we rarely would use it. I like it. I use flexible too. I think the flexible is nice to drive it around. You know, I scope both sides and I look at the eustachian tube same side and then also like contralateral side, like where I like turn the scope and kind of look at it across just because it gives you a slightly different angle. I don't know. Do you feel like that's important or helpful? Actually, I probably even do less than you do because I, if I go in one side and I can look at the ipsilateral and then I can look across the midline and see the contralateral, I get a sense of, okay, this is what I thought it was going to be. And I, I actually won't even put the scope in the other side because it won't make a big difference to me as if I didn't see any masses, lesions. And I think there's, let's say, mild to edema already, then what difference does it make? So I don't want to torture the patient through more scoping at that point. Yeah, that makes sense. Doesn't change your decision making. What about medical management? Like, let's say this is the first time the patient's being evaluated, which probably isn't as common for you because you're probably getting referrals since you're the tertiary referral center probably. But let's say a patient hasn't been on anything and this is their first eval. What medical therapies are worth trying? There's a handful of things I'll tell people that I think they should do is uh, avoidance of allergens if they can. Even if they say, I'm not allergic to anything, I'd still think there's probably a component of that. Maybe is food or even food diaries going to be of some benefit to these patients if they have some unusual history that's not just barrel challenge type situations. Should they be allergy tested and maybe even treated? Then we talk about nasal steroid sprays, allergy medications, potentially anti-reflux medications, performing modified uh, Valsalva at home to see if they can relieve any of their symptoms by doing conservative management. So many patients will seem to talk about, oh, I would like a holistic approach, a non-surgical type option. So then I'll throw this at them and they'll say, oh, well, that seems like it's going to take a while. Or we can try a tube and it'll make it better right away. Or we could talk about a balloon dilation. So that's how the discussion goes. And I get a sense for like how bothered or impatient are these patients that have this problem. Some patients are just coming in because they have this earfulness and they're scared that there's something bad or serious going on. And at the end of the day, if you tell them, you know, you're great, you're fine. And you switch it around to like, what? You should be really happy. Like of all the patients I'm seeing today, you don't even have a problem that requires a surgery or any intervention. Like, that's great. Your hearing test is perfect. Your ear exam is normal. And your ear fullness you seem to be living with, or, you know, maybe it's related to TMJ issues and you should use uh, warm compresses and massage the jaw and go see a oral surgeon, et cetera, et cetera. And they seem to be very content with that. So I found myself when I say, you know, there's not much therapy I can offer you. If I flip the script a little bit and make it seem more like a positive, they definitely walk out of there with, well, wow, like that was great. I don't have to have any uh, interventions done. That's the honest answer. Like there's not a surgery, I'm going to do anything to make it better, but that's good news. And sometimes they'll like it that way. And sometimes, of course, they want to get another opinion to go somewhere else and they'll be chasing this earfulness for other reasons. Yeah. Let's say you, you have the patient who has, who's tried, they've done lots of medical therapy and maybe they're on allergy shots or they're treating their allergies, so they're doing lots of these other things. And they've, maybe they've even had a tube before. And so you are thinking maybe that they're a good candidate for your station tube dilation. What is your counseling? You know, how do you talk about the procedure to them? Well, assuming they got relief from their tube before and they're saying, hey, like it felt great. I could either do another tube or let's do a dilation. And we're getting ready to say, let's do a dilation. I wish I probably had the luxury that you do of being able to just do this in the office. (laughs) I think that would change my paradigm a little bit of what I want to do and what I feel comfortable with. But because I'm too old school now and I'm probably not going to change my ability (laughs) to do this in the office because I'm too impatient myself probably to wait for something. 
But let's just say, because if, if, if I had that, the reason I'm saying it is because right now the decision is, should we go to the operating room for this quick three-minute procedure, which is safe, easy, but it does impact not only my schedule, but then it impacts, you know, the patient's day because they have to do all this. So versus a tube in the ear, there's some reasons to offer one or the other. But if they say they want to have surgery, but so my discussion is, you know, you're going to have this procedure. It's a relatively uh, short, easy procedure. Uh, I have to put a scope in the back part of your nose. We then put this balloon catheter into the eustachian tube. We dilate it up to uh, 12 atmospheres of pressure because data has said that's the right amount of pressure we need to put on the eustachian tube. We do it for two minutes because that's what we seem to think is the right amount of time based on all the data that's in the literature. No one really knows if these two numbers are exactly right, but that's what we do around the world. And then we take everything out and you go home um, within 10, 15, 20 minutes after waking up. You may have a little bit of a sore throat for a couple of days. You may have a little bit of blood from your nose for a couple of days, but all of that should resolve. And then we have to wait about two, three weeks to see uh, how your symptoms resolved over time. I tell them to avoid uh, nose blowing or a Valsalva maneuver for about a week to 10 days. There have been cases of um, either pneumothorax or um, pneumomediastinum from air tracking, maybe around a false passage or something that may have created. I don't know exactly how it would happen, but because of that reason, I just say just be gentle about any uh, nose blowing or Valsalva afterwards. And they can always go back to work, of course, the next day. They can resume all their normal activities. So it's not a big deal. But if I could give them the option of, you know, let's do this tube in the office versus let's do a balloon dilation in the office, I, I could see myself saying, you know, why don't, why don't we do both actually? Or mm -hmm. let's, you know, really lean you towards one way or another. So maybe in my practice, maybe I'm not giving them as fair of a comparison as I could because I'm biased <laughs> because of this general anesthesia issue. When you, as far as um, post-op expectations, after, you know, three weeks or after a certain amount of time when they can blow their nose again, are you having them do some modified Valsalva to start moving air a little bit better through the eustachian tube? Or do you tell them to just wait and see? No, I, I prefer them to start doing it. If I had my way, I'd tell them to do it right away, but I'm a little concerned about this issue. So I tell them to wait whatever I think is appropriate, seven, 10 days, two weeks, and then start doing it. The question comes up, they use CPAP or BiPAP, like when can they start that again? And I don't really know the right answer in that scenario. So I, I tell them 10 days because I don't know what that positive pressure is going to do. But I think these patients started on day number three and they do what they want to do. I just have to medically tell them to do it. But it actually be an interesting study that we were talking about here about looking at CPAP and BiPAP usage after balloon dilation and is it safe? So if we had a couple other centers that were doing it, we may be something to look at. Yeah. Yeah, well, I would be down. Let me know what maybe we can do that because it's so common for patients to be on CPAP these days. I feel like that's almost half of patients are talking about when they can resume CPAP after surgery. I wonder if there's even a correlation between CPAP users, you know, obstructive sleep apnea, needing CPAP or BiPAP and eustachian tube dysfunction. Is there a spectrum and are they all somehow related or uh, risk factors for one or the other? When you do your dilation procedures, is it common that you're doing it just that's it, that one procedure, or are you ever doing it in combination with something else, like a tympanoplasty? Or since you're seeing more of that, I'm just curious if you're ever doing combo. Yeah, it seems to be it's rare that I just do a dilation by itself. Probably the most common I do is probably a dilation and a myrogotomy and tube. Maybe 30% of the time I'm doing a cartilage tympanoplasty or a tint mastoid uh, in a severely retracted eardrum, and then I'll do a balloon dilation at the same time in that scenario. But that's probably a smaller percentage than the majority of cases that I'm doing it for. And the, the idea being that since the eustachian tube is the underlying issue, that maybe long-term outcomes for that new eardrum will be better if the eustachian tube part is dealt with. 
Yeah, could ear fullness get better? Could uh, the hearing results be better? Could prevention of future retraction be better? We actually tried to study this. We tried to pull data, and the problem was it's hard to know what data are we going to look at that's going to make the difference in these two patient populations. Is it hearing outcomes, which is so variable in these scenarios anyway? If I do a cartilage tympanoplasty for the same symptoms, I get great results with that. Patient's ear fullness will go better. Their hearing will go away. So did the dilation make a difference? Anecdotally, I feel, even though I haven't figured out a way to really study it, that these patients do better because mm -hmm. they will tell me that their ear feels less plugged, less pressure, and way better than when I just did a cartilage with a tube, for example, or mm -hmm. a mastoid even. But when I do that dilation, either as a staged procedure or at the same time, that they feel some relief from that. Yeah. And if you do a cartilage, your tympanograms are always going to be maybe type B after that. So that's not going to be helpful as far as giving you that information. So it can be tough. But it makes sense just thinking about it. If you address like the true underlying issue, if you imagine that the retracted eardrum is a result of the eustachian tube dysfunction, if you're fixing the underlying eustachian tube dysfunction, that should be better. That would be the theory, yeah. It'd be nice to be able to figure out a way to create a study. Let's talk a little bit about doing the procedure itself. You know, you're doing it in the operating room. Walk me through what your setup is, if you prefer a particular device. If you, I don't know, did you, we talked about you're blowing it up to 12 atmospheres. You're holding it for two minutes. Any other pearls around the actual performing the procedure? Yeah, so I think I probably do it similar to many people who do it. I uh, put pledges to the nasal cavity with uh, Afrin. If I'm going to do any ear procedures, we do that as that Afrin is working to decongest the nasal cavities. We use a 30-degree rigid nasal endoscope to evaluate the um, floor of the nose and get back there. I tend to always tell the uh, residents or fellows, like, right when you put the scope in there and you're going to suction or whatever you're going to suction, but right when you put the scope in there, put the balloon in there at the same time because I see them all the time. Like, they put the scope in, they take a look. And then they come out and then they get the balloon, they put the balloon in. And I say, why don't you just do them both at the same time? What did the look tell you? And they're like, I don't know. I think they just want to practice doing it, which again is fine. But as you can probably tell, I'm all about like efficiency yeah. and like don't do something if you're not going to do something yeah. differently based on They're like, it. we so, just want to stir up some bleeding first. So. Yeah, right. That's, that's what I'm always worried about because I'm always worried you're going to make this three-minute procedure into a 12-minute procedure because of bleeding. Mm -hmm. So let's just do it all at the same time. So then we take the balloon and they, really the key is falling along the floor of the nose and the turbine is definitely getting in the way. And occasionally you have to outfracture the turbine just a little bit to get it out of the way. Sometimes I'll just push it with the uh, balloon itself, the inserter, and I'll put it in the nasopharynx and then get into the eustachian tube. And the orientation of that opening, you have to make sure you're, you're guiding it towards where you think the external ear canal would be. So you really have to push it up more lateral than you probably think. Uh, and you really want to embed that stylet in there. And I'm talking about the Eclarent Aero device, which is the most common one that I use. I think it's soft, it's flexible, it's easy for me to manipulate. So uh, as an otologist, the easier you make it for me to get access in the nasal cavity, the easier it is for me to do the surgery. So then by gaining access there, I can put that inserter into the eustachian tube. I can hold it with firm pressure and then I can advance the balloon. There's a little marker on there that tells you when I've inserted it far enough. And then it's got a stopper to prevent it from going too deep into the eustachian tube. Uh, and so it's worked out you know, really well for me to get there. It'd be nice if there was a suction on there because that would help with some of these bleeding that we get back mm -hmm. there. And so if we could suction at the same time, it would then accelerate the process even more. And so I think there's some reiterations that are going to come out in the future to um, add those type of things. But it works out great. I know there's other products that are out there and many people have had success with them also. But I think once we find a product that works out pretty well, you can just keep using that same one for the majority of the cases. Yeah, I have used the Striker device. I think Medtronic might have one too now. 
I like the Clarent one because it is small, like the balloon is inside the device. And so as you're putting the device in the nose, I feel like it's a lot smaller and easier to get back there. So you're doing this last if you're doing it in combination, meaning you would do your tympanoplasty first and then do this procedure at the end? Yes, it's interesting you bring that up because just a week ago we were doing a case and did it in that order. And my fellow is asking, well, if you change the pressure of the eustachia, let's say you put this in there, you just had your graft in there, you put your prosthesis in there, and now you're ballooning up the eustachia at the end, is that moving anything around in your ear because of the pressure changes? And my answer was, it'd be no different than if the patient sneezed tomorrow or coughed tomorrow. What difference would it make? Like they're going to create the same amount of pressure. So I don't think it's an answer, but then it made me start thinking like, I don't know, should we do it in the beginning of the case as opposed to the end of the case? But from a decongestant and from just a time, you know, procedures, the uh, overlap, I think it makes sense to do it the way I'm talking about it. And acoustically, I don't know if it makes a big difference or placement of the graft makes a big difference, but it does make you think. So yes, to answer your question, we do the balloon dilation at the end of the ear procedures. And as you mentioned, there's a cap, uh, like a thicker part on the end of it. So there's no way you could guide this up into the middle ear, right? The device is made to prevent you from being able to really go beyond the bony isthmus of the eustachian tube. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I, mean, I would have no concerns about that. I'm going to, you know, hit the prosthesis or hit the cartilage graft or something because there's a stopper that prevents it from going into the bony uh, portion of it. Are you doing adenoidectomy ever or cauterizing or shaving off any of that lymphoid tissue on the posterior cushion or do you kind of stick with dilation? The least enjoyable thing that I could possibly <laughs> do is put a scope in the nose and find adenoid tissue and right away I have to turn to one of the residents and say, hey, like you got to get this tissue out of here because I don't know what to do. Yeah, so it does happen every now and then we have to get rid of this tissue, but it becomes a procedure where actually I will wonder like, wait, did I not scope this patient in the office to see this? And usually it is a younger patient so that, you know, we didn't and we were just like going by the history and didn't want to torture the kid. And then we get there and we're finding out it is. So we'll, we'll board that for a possible adenoidectomy at the same time. And I'm crossing my fingers that possible isn't going to happen. Yeah, that it, it can take a lot of time when you get a lot of adenoid tissue. That's right. Yeah. And then I won't do an adenoidectomy specifically because, again, I don't want to deal with this in my practice. So we will do the um, cauterization. We'll just try to shrink it down a little bit, try to open up that eustachian tube opening, see if that makes it better. If it doesn't, I'll send them back to the referring otolaryngologist to say they may need more evaluation of the uh, adenoid tissue to get taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. That can turn a three-minute case into a 30-minute case real quick. <laughs> For sure. So, you know, just rounding this out, can you talk about any reimbursement comments, um, any issues that you've had or anything that would be helpful to know as far as that side of it? So I think I've been doing it long enough that I've run the whole gamut now where 10 years ago when there was no FDA indication, let alone the idea of a code or the idea of reimbursement, we were doing these with uh, sinus balloons and ballooning up the eustachian tube to see if it would make a difference. And we would uh, send a bill out for an unlisted procedure code, and we maybe got paid on the tube that we put in the ear. And then it progressed on that now there's newer technology. We have the a balloon that's designed for the eustachian tube. We're all excited about it. So we start doing it. Same problem. There's an unlisted code. You may not get paid on it. Maybe you get paid on the scope. Maybe you get paid on the tube. So it really wasn't um, a big ability to reimburse when we're doing these type of things. And then the Academy did all the right things. There's a lot of good people who worked hard to make sure there was a code that was developed for this. And now we have a code uh, and the insurances now have accepted the fact that there's this code. They not necessarily have accepted the fact they're going to pay for it, 
but you can, so we went from a time where we were getting prior authorizations on all these patients now with this code to in order to get reimbursed. And I don't know what the percentage is, but there's many times we weren't getting paid on this even after the fact. They still would not reimburse us for that. And so then the hospital or the surgery center may be losing money on the balloon. I think now it seems to be there's more, especially in Michigan, more payers that are accepting of this technology. The evidence is showing that it's got usefulness. And I think we haven't had to go the pre-authorization route as much anymore as we used to. I haven't checked recently as to what's the reimbursement percentage actually look like. I, I know there's times where they're not um, still paying for that, even though there's a code and certain insurances still won't cover it. So my office does uh, fight that, I think, to some degree. But it's changed uh, quite a bit. And I think now office-based procedures, the way you get reimbursed in the office, the way the cost of these balloons is changed. I, th I think the reimbursement and the benefits financially to these can make uh, more sense than it ever did in the past. Yeah, I've seen the same thing. Once we had a code and you know, insurance has started picking it up, it's been a lot easier to offer it to patients because before that it was basically a cash procedure for patients in the office. And most people don't have thousands of dollars to try a balloon. Um, so that was a hard sell, but things are a lot better now. In the office, when you do it, do you do it isolated? You'll just do a balloon dilation in certain patients or do you seem to combine them with sinus procedures at the same time? Or most of the time, it's just doing a balloon. Yeah, just doing the eustachian tube dilation. And it, yeah, it's nice. I mean, when you think about doing things in the operating room and kind of the whole rigmarole that comes with coming in and being in PO and being in pre-op and coming through all that, when you contrast that to being able to do it in the office, it is a lot quicker from a logistic standpoint. It's a lot less time off for the patient. You know, some of them, if they want to take like a benzo beforehand, I mean, they're still going to not be out for that day potentially. I might tell them if you are taking, I use triazolam. It is short acting, but still I tell them they need a driver and they should plan to be off work and things like that. But some of them, if they don't want to take anything, then theoretically they could just go back to regular activity that day. So it, it is nice to be able to offer for sure. And your reimbursement has changed over time to the office-based being reimbursed relatively well, I would, mm -hmm. from what I understand. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It makes financial sense. They let me do it. <laughs> the, the, the powers that be say that it makes financial sense for us to, to, to do it in the office. So it's nice. How long does it take you? Let's say a patient comes in and you're done with your procedure. What is that time frame? Um, maybe 30 minutes to an hour. Like right now, I still spend a lot of time uh, with the anesthesia part. So they'll come in and as far as just numbing up the nose, I have like a a series of steps that I do and I take my time with that part of it because if I rush through that then you know that two minutes of dilation like the actual procedure part is it can make that part obviously more difficult and make that part last longer so if I do it right and get everything numbed up really well then when we are doing the balloon it really is just five minutes it's really short we probably need to wrap it up <laughs> Although I feel like I could probably geek out um, about this with you for a little bit longer. But anything that I have failed to ask you or any tips or tricks, pearls that you feel like our listeners really need to to take home? Yeah, no, I think you hit on all the major topics that seem to come up when we discuss this. I think identifying the correct patients and what symptoms they come in with, maybe trying out uh, objective testing just to make sure that the nasopharynx look clear. Is there any tympanogram evidence of issues? trying a myringotomy and, and or tube in the certain patients. And I think 
doing it and seeing how well these patients do for your first five to six patients. I think it's a little bit of a trial. You have to see, well, is it going to make a difference? And as long as you're not finding patches, you station tube, and you're able to identify those patients, those are the ones that are really at risk of making their symptoms worse. And now you've got a real headache on your hands because those are tough problems to treat after the fact, especially. So I think as long as you're cognizant of that, I think it is a safe, you know, reliable procedure with good evidence that it in the indicated um, patients that they'll do well. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think that is one of the, the complications that I stress the most is like the potential to cause patchless eustachian tube and then to discussing, okay, like if that were to happen, then, you know, this is what we need to do. Do you think that we'll see more patchless now that the balloon is becoming more widely used? Yeah, I can say I see it already. I see patients who come in and they'll say, oh, I had this balloon dilation done six months ago, four months ago, and ever since then I've had these type of symptoms. So I have seen it, not at a big number, but definitely more commonly than I've seen it, you know, 10 years ago. And so I think it is that we just have to make sure as a group, as otolaryngologists, we're very cognizant of that fact, or there is going to be a 1% to 5% increase, I think, in these patches, eustachian tube symptoms that we sort of iatrogenically uh, created that we want to be uh, very cautious of. I don't, actually, I don't think that you can take a patient with eustachian tube dysfunction and make them patchless. I think what it was is you had someone who was just on the borderline, you didn't quite realize, you, you heard the word ear fullness, and then you went in and did it, and now you took that patient and put them over the edge. But I think if they have eustachian dysfunction, I, yeah, I don't think you can make them patchless. So I'm not worried about that. Again, that general mm-hmm. population, I think you have to be those couple of red flags that we were talking about before and a patient's complaining about those symptoms. Just make sure you pay attention to those and don't do those type of procedures. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Good advice. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, taking time out of your Saturday to, to talk to us and to share your expertise with our listeners. Are you on any social media platforms? Like if people want to find you or, you know, connect with you, do you do any of the, the socials? I'd love, I'd love to say yes, but my answer is no, I don't. <laughs> so maybe your website then, if listeners want to learn more about you? Yeah, usually our website at michiganear.com or my email is uh, sbabu at michiganear.com. And so I have patients who reach out uh, quite frequently with questions or concerns. They can always reach out that way. Yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> adhere to these things. That, I don't know why I, I've tried it and I just find myself like going down these rabbit yeah. holes that are just not useful to me. So <laughs> I've deleted them all off my uh, phone. That's probably for the best. <laughs> yeah. All right. Very good. Thanks again. And to our listeners, check us out at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram and Twitter and let us know how the show landed for you. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.